You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 35, Depression. I think most of our listeners will know what it means to feel depressed, but today we're going to talk about depressive disorders, of which major depression disorder is the official diagnostic term. Is that right, Kim? That is right, Jim. So part of what I hope that we're going to kind of disambiguate today or educate is around the difference between what I would say is big D or capital D depression and little d or small d uh, depression. Uh, And capital D depression is really the actual clinical experience of having depression versus what I'd say is little d depression is just the manifestation of experiencing low mood, right? So Mm -hmm. most of us throughout our life will experience changes in mood, poor mood. Um, We might feel more blue sometimes. We might have more situational experiences that might render us more likely to say that we're depressed. Um, But it's really important to differentiate between those experiences and what somebody might actually experience as clinical depression or what uh, is the actual diagnostic term the actual diagnostic term is major depressive disorder. And this is diagnosed when you experience these mood changes for a prolonged period of time. And they're also accompanied by things like changes in your behavior and your thoughts. So what are some of the symptoms of the major depressive disorder? Well, most of our listeners are probably familiar with some of them, but it's worth kind of repeating um, because sometimes, particularly if you're seeing a family friend or a loved one, or even if you're in yourself or experiencing some some of these symptoms, sometimes it's really hard to to kind of put um, like connect the dots, right? So it makes sense to you know we'll go through what are the diagnostic criteria, and some of these symptoms are for you know the obvious one is a mood that is depressed. Some pipe, some people might say that they feel sad gloomy. Um, People might also say that they feel guilty, which is a curious sensation, but uh, they feel guilty and hopeless. They may say they feel blah. Um, Interestingly, males might um, be more likely to say that they're irritable or demonstrate um, kind of quick to anger or crankiness. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really one of the the major uh, uh, clinical features of depression. And then these are usually accompanied by something that we call anhedonia, which is a really fancy way of saying lack of pleasure or loss of interest in activities that used to bring you enjoyment. Um, And so that's, you know, typically, you know, if you have a family member or friend that's observing from the outside, they can see, oh, this person used to really enjoy painting or music or crafts, and they're not um, engaging in those things anymore. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you do see behavioral changes, right? So one of the big ones is in in typical depression, uh, you would show psychomotor retardation, which is a fancy way of saying that um, they just feel like low, low energy. And they almost feel like some people will say like their limbs feel weighted. It Mm. takes an enormous amount of energy and time to get even out of bed in the morning. Um, And then uh, accompanied, you know, with this is also sleep disturbances, not surprisingly, right? So um, sleep can either increase or decrease. So you either have the experience of like sleeping a lot or like interrupted sleep, which is tends to be quite common or feelings of insomnia or experiences of insomnia. And then another feature is... um, 
the aspect of thought, right? So uh, your thinking is kind of slowed as well. You have decreased cognitive abilities. You might find it hard to concentrate or make decisions. Um, and again, this can be really hard when it's like when it's experienced on its own. It could be any number of things. But again, it's right. important to recognize that depression is a number of these uh, symptoms. So along with changes in sleep, you could also see observe changes in appetite. Uh, again, could either increase or decrease. So, um, you, you know, a typical feeling is like eating a lot of food that's typically like high in carbohydrates, right? So craving things like donuts and muffins and bread products. We should um, say more than usual. Cause I think a lot of us crave bread and sure. <laughs> yes, a lot of the time. <laughs> definitely. And definitely more than usual. Yes. That's, that's definitely the case. And we'll talk about how this is experienced differently in genders, but uh, certainly we see this a lot in females in particular. And then some people stop eating, right? Yes. So um, in, in other forms of depression, it's either marked by kind of this agitated state, which also is accompanied by loss of appetite and they eat very little. So kind of like this, like hummingbird state where it's, you're kind of, you know, it's kind of like anxious depression. Um, so, uh, yeah. So then, um, the last one, which is, you know, the one that's quite serious, of course, is the, you know, depression is often accompanied by thoughts of death, suicidal ideation, or even, um, suicidal attempts. So, you know, I've listed a number of different clinical features and crucially, the diagnosis of depression is done uh, if the individual is experiencing five or more of these symptoms during the same two-week period. And at least one of the symptoms should be either depressed move or loss of interest or pleasure in activities. So, Right. And it, just because it's kind of a technical term, suicidal ideation is kind of picturing it or planning it or you know, kind of having like a dark, a dark fantasy about how it would actually be done. Is that, is that what suicidal ideation is? That's right. And, and so, you know, in typical, um, questionnaires that score depressive symptoms, that's considered one of the most, um, serious or concerning ones that, um, you know, if somebody has a plan, right. So you can right. have kind of like these fleeting thoughts, like, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, but if, if a, a clinician is present, often they will kind of probe into that and say, you know, do you have a plan? And if they do, this is really, really serious. And this definitely needs to, to be, um, you know, ensured that the, the, the person is safe. Ideally professionally, right. I mean, that's sort of like suicidal ideation is kind of a like yeah, you should you should get professional help, right? For sure, for sure, and 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 that's you know a good time to say to our listeners that we do have um, some resources available at our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website. Um, we'll say some of them at the end of the, the episode as well, um, just to ensure okay, that great. our so, listeners uh, are safe. Mm -hmm. So, what are the uh, statistics on depression? How many how many people get it? Um, so that's you know it's surprisingly difficult to kind of say oh it's this um, because it. It does differ on the, depends on the survey, right? So the in instrument that people use um, and people tend to measure different things like either, you know, what is your lifetime? Have you ever been diagnosed with depression, for example, or are you currently experiencing depressive symptoms? So those are very different things. But about worldwide, the, the estimate is about 3.4% of the population uh, have depression. So what that says is, you know, if there's 100 people in the room, 
more than likely three of them will have depression. Mm. According to StatsCan, which is, um, you know, a reliable uh, source in Canada, the community, the Canadian Community Health Survey or CCHS on mental health. Uh, the last time it was done is in about 2012, according to my research, about 5% of the Canadian population age 15 or over had reported symptoms that met the criteria for mood disorder. So it's important to recognize, again, this is self-report. It's right. people that are saying that they have these symptoms. Um, and this is would have been in the last year, so last 12 months, and more then and certainly major depressive disorder is a more common uh, mood disorder. And we'll have a whole other episode on bipolar disorder, but that is also considered a mood disorder. Importantly, uh, and this is why, you know, this is you know, the reason for why I study depression in my research is uh, is that it's definitely experienced differently across the lifespan. So 15 to 24 year olds, which are considered like emerging adults, um, had the highest rates of mood and anxiety disorders of all age groups. So about 7% of individuals who filled in that survey had um, experienced these symptoms over the last 12 months compared to 5% of older age groups. Wow. And are there uh, sex or gender differences? Yes, there absolutely are. And I do, again, want to uh, highlight that we have a whole episode um, of Mining the Brain on sex and gender. So it's important to recognize that biological sex is the sex assigned at birth and gender is your um, identity of how masculine or feminine that you feel. And it's important to recognize that you know, science has kind of lagged behind in our understanding of sex and gender as it informs uh, psychiatric disease. So a lot of the research is really on biological sex. Um, but that said, increasingly, we're starting to recognize that it is gender identity is, is really crucial as well. And we can say that on average, for every male that has a diagnosis of depression, two females will receive that diagnosis. So twice as many females have depression relative to males. And there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, again, we could do a whole episode on this, but... Um, you know, there's definitely social factors. So it's, there's a lot of stigma around mental health in general, but a lot of stigma for men, right? And, and for men, it's not as um, acceptable to be sad or to, to feel sad or to cry. And they're also, men, males are less likely to show help-seeking behavior. So it's possible that men are experiencing depression as much as females, but are less likely to go to the physician and actually get a formal diagnosis. However, there are also social factors and biological factors that do seem to confirm more risk to women. And we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about uh, the etiology or cause of depression and, and kind of unpack the biology. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that now. What what <laughs> what causes depression in general for people? Oh, well, yeah. Um, so surprise, no one knows. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> uh, we don't really know what causes depression. Um, we know you know, that there are certain um, clinical features of depression that seem to match and map on to changes in the brain, right? So um, I think the easiest way to say, the easiest way to really explain it is that depression involves so many changes in systems in the brain that involve things like mood, um, behavior, locomotor activity, motivation. So lots of these circuits in the brain that that are involved in a lot of different behaviors and lots of different signaling molecules that they themselves regulate these circuits, right? So I think it's the way I like to explain it is um, there's lots of different ways that you could get depressed, right? If I, I like to um, give the analogy of like dominoes, right? When you 
kind of flick off the first domino in a sequence, it tends to then hit a whole bunch of other dominoes after it, which then, you know, create the, the chain. And I think that depression is almost similar to that. If you think of every domino as like a, a specific signaling molecule in the brain, there could be many ways that you could have that end result of depression. So it is complicated. Um, we do know that there are both genetic and environmental um, factors that do confer risk. So, I mean, you know, clearly if a person is depressed, it's going to be because there's something different about their brain. It sounds like what you're saying is that there are neural correlates of depression mm-hmm. that we could find. Um, uh, but importantly, there are a bunch of things and each one can trigger the other ones. Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's right. So if you had a dysregulation in circuit X, which also we know influences circuit Y, um, that could you could show differences in those circuits, right? So you're 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 pathology could start in circuit X, but because circuit Y is, mm-hmm. is, is downstream of circuit X, then you'll also see changes in circuit Y. So think about oh, like so, yeah. the, the, the relationship between sleep and, and eating, right? Those are highly tied in the brain um, because we don't tend to eat in the middle of the night. So if you have something wrong in, a, in, a, in like a signaling molecule that's involved in your feeding behavior and that becomes dysregulated, then it will set off a cascade of downstream effects that will impact sleep. Right. So then if the person goes in complaining about sleep, the doctor is going to think it's a sleep disorder. So it's right. very complicated because finding the cause for that particular person might be really challenging. That's right. And and incidentally, I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned that because most people uh, that end up with a diagnosis of depression originally are seen by physicians because they're complaining of sleep problems. Okay. Right. So that's the ch- number one complaint that people will go in that, if, you know, a good clinician will do um, a good sort of diagnostic history, family history, and, and try to understand what is the cause of that sleep problem. Right. So can you inherit it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is seems to be a quite a strong genetic link for depression. So we know this because of um, a lot of like genetic studies that look at like family history, right? So first degree relatives. So if I'm uh, the child of a parent or the sibling of somebody that has depression, they have a two to three time greater rate of depression than in the general population. And then if you look at identical twins, which share 100% of their genetic material, the concordance rate, which is a fancy way of saying is um, if one twin has a given condition or a disorder uh, and the other twin has it, we call that they're, that they're concordant. Um, if the other twin doesn't, we say it's discordant. So the concordance rate for depression between identical twins is around 45%. Hmm. Now, that's interesting because it says that 55% are discordant. So we, we say that 45%, so it's, it's a heritability estimate of, of the variance in the population is probably due to genetics, but 55% is probably due to the environment, so environmental differences. So again, that gives us, it's not 100% genetic. There's, there's no one gene that's a, that you inherit and you develop depression, um, but you probably in all likelihood inherit genes that confer risk. So I, I'm, I, th- I think I'm a little, con- I think I might be confused about this concordance rate. Mm-hmm. So if one twin, say, doesn't have depression, then there's a 55% chance that the other one does? No. If one twin has a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, there's, um, 
if, so if you, okay, let's say if you have a hundred identical twins in the population, uh, 45 of them will both have major depressive disorder. 55 of them, one might have the diagnosis of major depressive disorder and the other one doesn't. Or neither of them. Uh, well, so for this purposes of this, I think it's a hundred twin pairs have major depressive disorder where each, I, either one or both have major oh, depressive oh, disorder. Oh, I, I see. I right? see. Okay, so okay. you're sampling from um, identical twins of which at least one has major depressive disorder. Okay. Okay. That, uh, that makes more sense to me. <laughs> and probably um, What about to, um, to siblings, like uh, fraternal twins? Uh, it's about 20%. Concordance okay. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a um, large, large genetic component, but still a lot to be explained. So what are uh, some of the known environmental components? Again, it's hard to say, but um, we do know that there are um, things like the experience of stress and trauma, as well as hormonal changes. So if we think about, you know, going through adolescence, which sparks off a, a, definitely a, a flux of uh, major sex hormones coursing through the body, that they themselves have an impact on cells. So things like this, we, we say that they um, can change the way that genes are expressed. And this is something known as epigenetics. Mm, what's that? So epigenetics is um, how genes can be differentially expressed depending on the role of the environment. So basically look at your genetic code. Like you have, you've inherited your, your genes from your parents, right? And each of these genes is like the instructions for making a specific protein. And that doesn't change, right? Uh, if there was a change, that would be something called a mutation, right? So um, the gene just, whether it's there or not, makes a specific protein. But the activity of that gene can change in response to the changing environment. Um, and so you can make more or less of a specific protein um, depending on those environmental inputs. And we know that things like, you know, being bullied, um, taking a lot of drugs, um, going through war, uh, changing, you know, moving to a different climate, all of these experiences uh, change the way that these can have epigenetic uh, effects. So they change the way that these proteins are um, are translated, right? So you can have like more dopamine in your prefrontal cortex or less dopamine in your prefrontal cortex. So we know things like having experienced bullying uh, mm. can have an epigenetic effect whereby, again, if you've inherited specific genes that um, are involved in regulating mood and, and emotion, they uh, that could you know put on the onset of depression, for example. Right. So it sounds like the environmental triggers um, tend to be bad things happening to you. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not or, not too far from common sense. Then or, in those cases. or puberty, right? Like certainly, you know, like epigenetic. Or menopause does menopause yeah, cause uh, yeah. depression too? For sure, for sure. Or uh, your menstrual cycle, right? Like just your monthly right, okay. menstrual cycle. If you're a female, can alter the way that you you ha experience mood. And in extreme ways, this is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is considered uh, diagnos uh, diagnosis in the mood disorders as well. And it's it's also it, it can be a side effect of some medication too, right? Yep. Yep. Um, 
again, if you're taking medicine that impacts any of those circuits or dominoes in the body and the brain, then you could tip it in the, the right or wrong direction so that you could have a side effect of depression. Yeah. Chemotherapy can do that as wow. well. Certain treatments for cancer. So I've seen a lot of um, images on Facebook that have text on them, and I'm always skeptical of them. Uh, <laughs> one of them says that serotonin is like the happiness, oh, the happiness thing. That can't that can't be. Why don't you Why don't you help me uh, clear up? Like, so what is the relationship between serotonin and, and depression? Ah, <sighs> so. <laughs> You know, these kinds of th images, if it's overly simplistic like that, I always kind of think, well, I'm skeptical, right? It, there's right. there's no one signal in the body and the brain that does any one thing, right? The the, the human human behavior is so complex and, and we've experienced so many changes across uh, evolution that um, the reality is a lot of signaling cascades in the body and the brain do more than one thing, right? There's a lot of redundancy built into the nervous system as well. So yes, serotonin is one of the neurochemicals in the human brain that we know is involved in the regulation of mood, but it's not the only signal. In, in fact, for many years, scientists did believe that serotonin was uh, the, you know, the cause of depression in that there was a whole theory called the monoamine theory of depression that suggested that low levels of serotonin were indeed the cause of depression. And I want to emphasize that, that, emphasize that it's the cause of depression, right? And, mm. and, and somehow this has echoed well into 2020 so that um, most popular science, most, you know, people who are tuned to um, popular neuroscience, when they think of depression, they think of serotonin. Um, and, and this is because of studies that were done in the, the 60s and 70s that revealed that um, there were, were links between the serotonergic system and mood. Right. And, and also because antidepressants affect the serotonin system, right? That's and right. They, they can work. Yeah, so that's really um, the the best piece of evidence that serotonin the serotonergic system is implicated in depression. So the monoamine hypothesis does suggest that reduced activity of things like serotonin and another um, monoamine known as norepinephrine uh, does you know this is what is leads to depression. And this is based primarily on evidence that drugs that are effective in treating depression tend to target these systems. So probably most of our listeners have heard of SSRIs, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Whoa, that's a mouthful. Um, I don't want our listeners to get overwhelmed with the neuroscience here, but essentially the way that these SSRIs work is they, uh, through their ways that they work at the synapse, which is the, the point of contact between two cells in the brain, is they tend to lead to higher levels of serotonin in the synapse. So you boost that serotonergic signaling. Right. And reuptake, preventing reuptake is also how caffeine works and cocaine works. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it just keeps, keeps the stuff going through the neurons rather than having them get soaked up by the, by the early neuron. That's uh, reuptake. That's um, right. So the fact that, the fact that serotonin, uh, increasing the flow of serotonin in the brain seems to uh, fight depression, it sounds like a pretty compelling reason to think that it's, it's a very important aspect of it, right? For sure. But it turns out, surprise, serotonin is not the smoking gun. And there's a, a wealth of evidence. Kim, can't you make the brain simpler for our podcast, 
please. <laughs> Isn't that your job? I know. Wouldn't that be easy? <laughs> I know, right? Sorry, I'm like, I think the mind is equally as complex, but. Um, oh, thank you. Mm, thank you for saying mm, that. Well, you know, the mind is the product of the brain, right? Um, yep. So some evidence against serotonin being the smoking gun. First of all, there is little evidence that low levels of these neurotransmitters cause depression. So if somebody and, has natural levels of serotonin mm, that are low, mm-hmm. it's a poor predictor of whether they have depression. Or right. Not. Like you can sample um, serotonergic metabolites, which are the breakdown products of these neurotransmitters in your cerebral spinal fluid. I don't recommend going to do that at your doctor's office. It's quite painful, but there's no real differences between people who have depression versus those who do not. And then mm-hmm. uh, one of the most compelling and interesting studies, I think, is was done at McGill University, uh, where uh, a faculty member, a neuroscientist at McGill, developed something called a tryptophan a milkshake, um, which essentially is, is a milkshake that is made up of a bunch of amino acids, which often are the precursors to um, the, the synthesis of these neurotransmitters. So tryptophan is an amino acid. It's found, you might have heard of turkey and tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an amino acid that's found in a lot of food products. And uh, the biosynthesis of, of serotonin is formed from tryptophan. So uh, Marco Layton developed this tryptophan-depleting milkshake, which meant that he uh, basically um, concocted this mixture that if p- people drank it, it would uh, cause an, 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 a lowering of serotonin in the brain. And what he found was that people... Um, who didn't have a history of depression, if they drank this milkshake, it didn't cause depression. But interestingly, if patients had a history of depression and drank this milkshake, it actually led to a relapse. So there is some some link there. You know, serotonin is involved, but it doesn't cause or produce um, depression. And the other um, kind of compelling piece of evidence is if anyone out there has ever Um, been on antidepressants or prescribed antidepressants, um, what you may have noticed is that when you start taking them, your depression doesn't go away right away. And that's fascinating because the drug tends to target that serotonergic transporter protein pretty immediately. So you're having a biochemical effect but no clinical relief. Yeah, so, that is weird because caffeine affects you in like 15 minutes. And so does by, cocaine. By, yeah. by preventing reuptake. Do we, do we, That's correct. Do we know mm-hmm. why that... Or do we know why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it just goes to show that caffeine and cocaine, those primary targets of those... Um, uh, with cocaine, it's the dopamine transporter protein and caffeine, it's adenosine. Um, we, it's having an immediate effect and then that must be the primary target, right? So the biochemical effect is matched very closely by the behavioral effect. With antidepressants, this suggests there are other signaling cascades at play, right? So yes, you might be boosting the serotonergic signal right away. And the, you know, there is, I, mean, I don't want to get into the, the real complexity and the wheel, weeds of it, but essentially there are other signaling molecules that seem to be need to be regulated in order to see a clinical relief. Okay. And so, so we do know that these reuptake inhibitors are actually inhibiting reuptake. We just, and so the fact that they're not curing depression within 20 minutes <laughs> means that it's not the whole picture, right? Mm-hmm. And finally, okay. I, did, I, did, I did want to mention that not everybody is cured or, or even helped with antidepressants, 
right? It, there, there seems to be a, a sizable proportion of the population that aren't the depression doesn't go away with these drugs, right? So yeah. if it was all about serotonin, you would see this pretty generalized change, and you don't. Right. Okay. Well, how about um, how about stress? Can 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 being stressed be a um, a factor in getting depression? Mm-hmm. Yes, and certainly all of us are well aware that right now we're going through one of the the major stressors of our lifetime with the COVID nineteen pandemic. For those of you listening in twenty twenty five, Jim and I are recording this in the 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 heart of the pandemic, so November twenty twenty. But um, stress we know can initiate depre- uh, depressive depressive symptoms. It can also worsen or exacerbate them uh, and can promote relapse to a depressive symptom, um, depressive disorder. So this suggests that the underlying circuit that is involved in the stress response must somehow be implicated, right? It's another one of those dominoes in the sequence. And for those of you that are interested in learning more about stress, we do have a whole episode. In fact, I believe it's episode one on minding the brain, all on stress. And I talk in there about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis, which is the main neural uh, system that's activated when we experience stressors and pumps out things like cortisol and adrenaline in our bloodstream. And we know that, again, um, HPA activity or, or problems with the HPA activity must uh, play a role in depressive symptomatology because it's, in fact, one of the most common clinical findings in depression. And what mm. that means is that if, um, if you go, if you take blood or saliva from a patient who has depression and you measure cortisol levels, you will, in fact, see alterations in the cortisol levels relative to people without depression. Um, and they can experience what's called hypercortisolemia, which is elevated levels of cortisol in the blood, even if they're not stressed. Uh, you can see cortisol blunting, uh, which is the opposite. So cortisol levels tend to fluctuate throughout the day. They follow a very diurnal or, or um, uh, circadian rhythm. And in patients with severe depression, you actually don't see that diurnal rhythm. They have this blunting or flattening mm. of the curve. And um, and so it, it's interesting because there's no biomarker for a lot of psychiatric disorders, with the exception of PTSD, interestingly. But um, it would be really nice to be able to diagnose if we had biomarkers, right? So, you know, you take a blood sample and it's like, oh, you have depression. But these cortisol changes aren't um, pathognomonic to depression. So pathognomonic is a fancy word for saying it's it's not only experience in depression. So it is associated with depression, but it's not the only condition where we see that. And and finally, I did just want to emphasize that, um, you know, this is certainly the, the research that I've done over the years is understanding the etiology or cause of psychiatric disease. Uh, one of the big ones is, as I mentioned earlier, trauma. And mm-hmm. we know that um, if you uh, if you've experienced early life trauma, abuse, neglect, um, or what have you, we do tend to see a lot of these alterations in the activity of the HPA axis, even if they don't have yet a diagnosis of depression. So there's the, you know there's all these interesting li- links between the stress system and experience of um, mood disorders. How does the uh, stress system impact the brain in relation to depression? So the 
hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HP axis. So the hypothalamus is a brain region that's located kind of at the, the mid middle or base of the brain. And it's, um, the main role of the hypothalamus is in basically homeostasis. So it, it, it regulates the, the, the body in response to the changing environment. And it in turn is also regulated by another brain region known as the hippocampus. And what's really fascinating, bear with me here, this is full-on neuroscience nerd out time, is, um, as I mentioned, the HP axis, the main signal that comes out of the activity of the HP axis is cortisol. Cortisol travels all throughout the bloodstream and targets many different organs in order to allow the organism to cope with stress. It also feeds back up into the brain. And the hippocampus has cells in it that have receptors that bind cortisol. These are known as the GR and MR receptors. The GR or glucocorticoid receptors bind cortisol at very, very high concentrations. So when the organism is very, very stressed, cortisol goes is pumped out in large amounts and gets through the bloodstream, gets back up into the brain, binds to those GR receptors in the hippocampus. And that's the signal to shut down the HP axis, right? It's saying, okay, you've coped with the stressor. Things have changed. Now you need to shut down the HPA axis in order to quiet it. So you're not pumping out all these signals anymore. If the stressor is uh, um, severe enough, it won't shut itself down. And in fact, high levels of cortisol are toxic to those cells in the hippocampus. It actually kills them off. So over time, you actually have a death of cells in the hippocampus. And what's interesting is that if you look at the brains of somebody who has major depressive disorder untreated, or any, like a lot of serious psychiatric disease, You'll see on the MRI scan, which is magnetic resonance imaging, so you can see um, uh, the, the different brain regions, you'll see that those uh, hippocampal cells, so the hippocampus is shrunken. Hmm. So um, that's how stress can impact the brain. That's why I always tell my students, don't stress too much it will kill off your brain cells. Now, don't worry, <laughs> folks. Yeah, I know. Then they're like, oh my God, my brain is dying. Um, but <laughs> this is like really severe. Like we're talking, you know, very, very high levels of stress that is untreated, no intervention. This is very unusual and rare. Right. But importantly, the hippocampus, which is that brain region that is that has those cells that listen for your, your stress system, it is involved in, guess what? motivation and emotion, right? So I hope you're starting to see, and I hope our listeners are starting to see that there's this picture emerging of how these signals impact certain brain circuits that are involved in the regulation of motivation and mood. Yeah. And uh, this is just a total aside, but I, I read a lot about the hippocampus too, but it has absolutely nothing to do with any of this stuff. Mm. <laughs> it's all about yeah. place memory. cells and, mm -hmm. and reconstructing uh, episodic memory in your imagination, mm -hmm. which is just to say that, you know, it's not like one brain area, one function. Yeah. Um, and that's the dorsal hippocampus. It's the ventral. So the top part of the, the hippocampus seems to be spatial learning and the bottom part is anxiety regulation. Mm. So what are what are some of the other things going on in the in the body and brain? 
With depression, yeah. So another one that's really fascinating um, is the involvement of the immune system. So I want you to think about the last time that you were really sick, like you had a fever and you were not feeling well. Um, and try to think about, you know, did you want to get out of bed? Did you want to go see friends? Did you want to eat a bunch? How was your sleep? Right? You're probably thinking, no, I, you know, you wanted to stay in bed, watch Netflix, your, your eating might have been, you know, impacted. You're not really don't have much of an appetite. Uh, you also sleep is probably impaired to some extent. Uh, and all these experiences collectively are known as sickness behavior. And mm. if you were listening at the very beginning of the episode when I was talking about the clinical features of depression, maybe now you're seeing the, the similarities between those, right? Those sickness behaviors seem to resemble what we feel like when we're depressed. Uh, these sickness behaviors are due to a different kind of signal in the body and the brain, and those are called cytokines. And cytokines are the main um, signaling molecule between different parts of the immune system. So much like neurotransmitters signal between cells of the brain, uh, cytokines signal between different parts of the immune system. And when you're sick, um, what happens is cytokines travel up into the brain and they inform the brain that you are unwell. And we think that that's why then you show all those sickness behaviors, because it's not really in your best interest to go out partying uh, when you're not well, because you need to conserve your energy, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, What's come up in the last decade, couple decades, is increasing evidence to suggest that maybe cytokines might be mediating some aspects of depression as well. And we know this because um, there's been a specific focus on things like interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha. Those are two specific kinds of cytokines. And interestingly, guess what? They also are signaling within the HPA axis. So they, when the stress system is activated, uh, it also tends to shut down the immune system. Again, because you want to focus on, on coping with the stressor instead of fighting disease, right? So, right. you know, you, you experience high levels of cortisol, low levels of, um, you tend to um, shut down the immune system, but then also these cytokines might be overproduced in some ways um, as a result of that. So, you know, I just want to kind of emphasize that there's all these different signaling molecules that tend to speak to one another. And there's also crosstalk between the HPA axis and serotonin, right? So there's clearly these different signaling molecules, cortisol, uh, cytokines, and serotonin that all seem to be implicated in mediating depressive symptoms. Hmm. That's great. And and have these have these other um parts of depression led to any new treatments? Yep. Um so probably well I'm I'm wondering have you heard of ketamine? Uh I think it's a drug. Mm. Yes it's a drug. Like um, can be can be misused, right? Yes. So uh ketamine is can be it's interesting because it can be cl it's classified as actually a veterinary anesthetic and it's used in veterinary medicine um, to produce anesthesia but at different doses it can actually be misused and it's kind of been labeled as a party drug or a rave drug because at certain doses it can produ produce this dissociative state right so it is considered what's called a dissociative anesthetic and for our listeners uh, the experience of dissociation is almost 
Like you can be awake and alert, but have no memory of what's happening, right? So at low doses, people might say that they feel detached from their body. They feel floating, dreamlike, and even euphoric, uh, which is why it can be misused. But at very high doses, it produces um, this dissociative state where you lose all mental contact with your environment. And this is in spite of your eyes still being open and your conscience conscious. Uh, and this is why it's also been used, uh, sadly, as a, a date rate drug. At uh, even higher doses, it produces complete anesthesia. Um, so its street drug name is Special K and or Cat Valium. Yeah, stay away from it. Um, mm, but yeah. unless you're getting treated for depression with it. So how, how could you use it with depression? Mm-hmm. So as it turns out, um, I always say science is serendipity, meaning that a lot of our discoveries were are by chance. Um, it turns out that ketamine is also effective in relieving some symptoms of depression. And this was discovered because uh, ketamine is also has pain relieving effects. You can imagine if any anesthesia or no, I shouldn't say anesthesia, some anesthesias because of their ability to impact consciousness can also um, be experienced as analgesics or pain relieving. And scientists were exploring it in animal models of pain and also happened to notice that it, it impacted mood. And this was in animals and they tested it in something known as the forced swim test, which is an animal model of depression where you put a, uh, a rodent, a uh, rat or a mouse in a tank of water and you measure the amount of time it spends um, swimming or floating. And animals that are quote unquote depressed, so we say they they're showing depressive symptoms, tend to float more than they swim. If you give an animal a typical antidepressant like an SSRI, it um, increases the amount of time they spend swimming. So it's it's the best model of depression, um, or I shouldn't say model of depression, it's the best um, model of antidepressant effects, right? So we know every drug that is effective in humans for depression seems to reduce floating in this forced swim test. So what they found again is that ketamine reduced uh, this floating behavior in, in animal models. So they were like, hmm, let's try it in humans. And sure enough, uh, they have done a lot of experimentation. In fact, there is uh, a lot of research groups here in Ottawa that, that look at this, where it, as it turns out, if you give uh, humans low dose of ketamine, IV, it has almost an instantaneous reversal of depressive symptoms. And most crucially, it seems to reduce symptoms of suicidality. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's really, Is this really... actually being used in treatment or is this still yeah. in the research stage? No, it's it, it's used in treatment protocols. We can put on our website, uh, I'll sh uh, we'll have a video. Um, I'll show you a, a video of a of a, of a young woman getting this and it's it's pretty compelling. So uh, I just want to shout out our one of our adjunct research professors, Dr. Jennifer Phillips, who's at the Royal Ottawa uh, Hospital Institute for Mental Health Research, does human research looking at ketamine and how it relieves symptoms of depression. And then our own faculty member in the Department of Neuroscience here at Carleton, Dr. Achel Aguiar Vias, uh, he's one of our newest, he's our newest faculty member, uh, is looking at the intracellular signaling cascade um, of ketamine's effects. So he's trying to un un understand how ketamine works in the brain to relieve depressive symptoms because ideally, then if you're understanding the signals that are impacted by ketamine, then we can capitalize on that and develop better pharmaceutical 
um, drugs that target that specific system. And he just got a nature paper on this topic. So um, yeah, I know. So we're really, really thrilled for him um, because, you know, this is really, really important research. Um, well, d does the ketamine affect the serotonin system? No, not exactly. Again, it's probably affecting serotonin downstream. It, its primary target is something called glutamate. So glutamate is one of the principal neurotransmitters in the brain that regulates excitation. So when glutamate is released in the nervous system, it tends to uh, activate cells versus GABA, which does the opposite and inhibits. So glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter signal that then regulates serotonin to some extent. Um, so glutamate, uh, when it binds to its receptor, one of them is known as the NMDA receptor. Uh, when it binds to the NMDA receptor, the channel opens and it allows in um, a lot of excitatory uh, signals so the, the cell is more likely to fire. And then uh, it, when we have activation of glutamate at the NMD receptor, it tends to be involved in learning and memory. So this is why um, when ketamine binds to that NMD receptor, it, it blocks it. So it acts as an antagonist, which is a fancy word of saying that's like preventing the signal from, from being um, sent, right? So and ketamine binds that glutamate, uh, NMDA receptor, like a lock and a key, and prevents glutamate from binding to it, meaning no signal uh, gets through. And so um, this probably explains why ketamine at certain doses has that amnesic effect, right? So when you're taking it, you can be alert and walking and talking, um, but you have no memory of that event. But what's neat is, and this is where it gets really complicated, unfortunately, is that when um, ketamine binds the receptor, or glutamate, uh, it involves this complex signaling pathway inside of the cell. And that seems to affect um, uh, both immune uh, signaling and serotonergic uh, signaling. So this is involving something called the MAPK or ERK pathway. My goodness. So it's, it's this, this interesting topic because you can get depressed from somebody dying and you're bereaved or whatever, but like the the details go all the way down to inside of a cell. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's 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 uh, I'm a little. I have to admit, I'm a little lost. <laughs> yeah, and probably our listeners are too. Probably our listeners are too. Uh, so yes, it is highly complicated, which is why it's really, really difficult to treat depression. There are lots of different signaling pathways that are implicated, and there's no one target for any one of these pathways, right? But what's important, and I think this is the main takeaway from today, is depression is real. It's not about being weak. It is in your brain, and it can have a significant impact on your well-being. Well, we don't, okay, so we don't know exactly how it works, but sometimes we can have treatments that do some good, even if we don't know exactly how those treatments work. So is it, is depression is treatable, right? Yeah. And in fact, some of the main treatments are non-pharmacological, right? So uh, we can have SSRIs that, are, that, that work very well. We have something called SNRIs. Um, we have a whole host of newer antidepressants that can, can have an impact, but also we have cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, um, mindfulness meditation. There's lots of different ways that uh, depression can be treated. Right. But okay. So what if, what can our listeners do if they, or maybe somebody they know seems to have some depressive symptoms? Well, I would say depending on the severity of it, if it's, if it's moderate to severe, it really probably 
requires oversight from either a psychiatrist or a family physician or a psychologist, right? So you need you need some extra help, right? So and that's okay. You can you can reach out to folks, um, but if you have mild to moderate symptoms, there are a number of lifestyle changes or lifestyle uh, impacts that can actually so if you do have mild or moderate symptoms there are a number of ways that you can um, kind of lessen those symptoms so for example exercise Um, we have a whole episode of mining the brain on aerobic exercise which really does impact um, mood and it does so in really interesting ways so um you know, getting outside, walking outside, going, you know, high rigorous impact, uh, high impact aerobic exercise can also be really beneficial. In fact, uh, a recent survey came out looking at mental health of Canadians during COVID-19. And what they found was that Canadians that reported exercising outdoors had lower depressive symptoms. Now, this is correlational, not causal, but we do know that there is this causal relationship. So exercise. Um, The other thing is meditation, which we're increasingly seeing some evidence that it can um, uh, lessen the symptoms of depression. And also, obviously, trying to reduce your amounts of stressors in your life, which right now might be difficult. But, um, you know, you can only control what is... you, You can only control what you can control. You can't control anything else. So you can control uh, the way we react to certain things in our environment. And then socializing. So another pillar of mental health is our ability to be around others and to have good quality social interactions. So social connections uh, buffer against the effects of stress. And we have a whole episode about social networks as well. Mm-hmm. So professional help is certainly suggested if it's major, but if any listeners are experiencing these symptoms or have a friend or family member uh, they're con- concerned about, we do, uh, again, have some links included on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com yeah, website. Th- thank you so much for that. I mean, th- I think everyone knows a couple people who have at least some of the symptoms and whether or not it's a capital D or lowercase d depression. Um, it's great to know that there's there are things they can do. So thank you. Thanks, Jim. Finding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible, in part, by AIR, for obvious reasons. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. Music is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.